Merry Christmas. I finally beat Canadian Tire for once. I'm excited about that. Usually I'm having to catch up and be like, no, it's not about the presence, and it's not about, it's about Jesus. Okay, but I get the first word now. All we have to do is like do it at Thanksgiving while everybody's still doing that, right? Oh man, I'm I'm excited about this. I've been waiting about this for a long time, okay? I mean, ever since we started, Dave, we sat down in class this morning and Dave's like, this is my favorite chapter. I'm like, mine too. I, I really, I love this. Um... And I'm, I'm still pushing for a Christmas pageant that involves a large dragon. Um, I really am. I'm, I'm only. I'm, I'm actually not joking about that. I think that'd be cool. I I will just say I've been really thankful because you've had a lot of questions about this study as we've been going through the book of Revelation. Um, and you have not kept them to yourselves. You've been coming up and talking to me. You've been calling me on the phone. You've been sending me emails, and I really appreciate it. And, and this week, I got, I've really enjoyed the feedback, and I've really enjoyed being able to kind of have conversations outside of the Sunday sermon with you when you're going like, I don't get this, or I want to understand more about this, or, or help me. So I think that's just great. So keep it coming. I love it. All right? Don't stop. I had one this week that was like like a three-page email, which that was particularly cool. And I'm, I'm saying that without any sarcasm. Like, I really enjoyed that, actually, of, of like, okay, yeah, let's play with this. And what about that? And what about that? It was good. Um, but one of the questions that was asked about last week when we were talking about when we were talking about Revelation 8 through 10, we were talking about the judgment of God, and we were talking about prayers, and, and our prayers mattering, being like incense before the throne of God. And, and, and the person that wrote me said, okay, so this idea of like our prayers being added to the incense and then thrown to the earth and, and having an impact and being the presence of God on the earth, that seems comforting at first. But then when you think about the fact that, that no hearts turn back to God through all the earthquake and the terror that struck the earth and all of the judgments and the trumpets, does it actually matter? That we pray. Does it actually matter that we that we witness? Um, it may have caused a bigger earthquake, but that doesn't suggest that more prayers would have changed the outcome. If all of these terrors don't turn people back to God, why would we think that we could do that through our lives? Or is our testimony through the way that we live more powerful? That was kind of the question that was asked, and and I tried not to send my reply while giggling in excitement because if somebody walks in while you're doing that, you look kind of weird. Um, but it was hard because, because not only do I have, uh, do I love engaging questions like that, it was also the perfect setup for this week because it's a valid question. If all of these trumpets that God lays out, all of these warning signs of judgment are not enough to get people to turn around, if that, if that won't save the nations, what will? And the answer is in the sounding of the seventh trumpet, or at least the answer starts in the sounding of the seventh trumpet. So we're going to go there. Um, Chapter 11 of Revelation, if you're following along with me, starting in verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven that said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord 
and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time for the judging the time has come for the judging of the dead, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets, and for your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant, and there came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Awesome. And totally not what we expected. Again, Revelation keeps doing this to us. Have you noticed this? Okay, we have seven seals, we have seven trumpets. You hear six of the seals get opened, and things start to get progressively like they're going one direction, right? And then there's this pause and this interlude where some stuff is explained. And then the seventh seal gets ripped off, and you're expecting some cataclysm, and instead you get silence and prayers. Okay. And then the trumpets come, the warning sounds come, and they're getting progressively worse, okay? And we've just had demon locusts, okay? I don't know how it gets a whole lot worse than that. And then we have unholy cavalry, and then you're going, wow, I don't know what's, what's going to be next at the seventh seal or at the seventh trumpet. And again, there's this pause that we're going to come back to in a second in chapter 11 where some stuff is explained. And then the seventh trumpet sounds, and you're like, I'm ready, I think. My knees are shaking, but I'm ready. Give me the final warning of judgment. It doesn't come. Instead, we get worship we get we get catapulted back into the throne room with the elders and creation and everybody crying out that god has begun to reign I, hmm what are we supposed to do with this what are we supposed to do with this because we also see this we also see this image of god's holy temple being opened Okay, now I don't know how a building gets opened, but, but we're, it's almost kind of like you're moving through. Okay, so, so we move through God's temple. This image moves through God's temple and through the outer courts into the holy place, inside the building. And then we're going to move past the curtains into the most holy place. Remember, when John's writing this, the temple is gone. Okay? But the temple is always going to represent where God is, where God's presence is, where heaven meets earth. And so we're moving past the outer courts and we're moving into the holy place and then the curtain gets pulled back and we're in the most holy place and even more than that, the Ark of the Covenant is there, the mercy seat, the literal place where it says God is enthroned among the cherubim, the place where he sits where heaven really meets earth, the mercy seat, okay? And guess what? It says, I don't know, what does it say, what does it say for you? It's a, and for me, it says the ark was seen. That is, that is not what that word is really implying here, okay? It says the ark was revealed 
it is the same kind of word as the opening thing. It is the same word as apocalypse. The ark, the ark is opening. Okay, now, that should terrorize us just a little bit. Okay? 10 out of 10 Nazis say that it's a bad idea to open the Ark of Covenant. <laughs> Thank you for everybody that got that. Okay? But this is... This is the Ark of the Covenant. This is the throne of God that is being opened up to us mere mortals. That should make you shake in your boots a little bit. Maybe this trumpet is a little more powerful than we thought it was. But what is this, but what is this image all about? It's, it's terrorizing, but it's an invitation to go deeper into the reality of God, deeper into intimacy with God. The, the, the unknown is being made known in a way like never before. That's, that's really what is being said here. And it also says something else. God is not sending any more warnings. God is out of warning mode. God is now in redeeming mode. Right? I mean, what, what is the proclamation? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. He will reign forever and ever. The warnings are, even, even though the warnings are still happening in our world, Warning being the primary function of what God is doing and interacting with creation and interacting with us is done. God is not just warning us anymore. Now God is redeeming. Now God is taking territory back. Now God is bringing his kingdom. And the presence of God is being opened up and revealed to all of us. And here's what it is. There's a baby in the manger. Have you ever thought of, have you ever thought about just how crazy of an end game move that is for God? I just just think about this. Natural disasters, supernatural decay, all of these things going like the world is not right and you need something to make it right. And people going, yeah, okay, whatever. And God goes, okay, now okay. Now I've got my plan that is going to redeem the world. There's a baby in the manger. That makes no sense. That makes no... It goes against all of our understandings of power. It goes against all of our understandings of victory. It goes against, it goes against all of our understandings of, of what a king ought to be. God says, okay, for my plan of victory and overcoming is going to be to take on flesh, make myself vulnerable, walk with you, take on your transgressions, and be the sacrifice for you. That's my endgame move. I'll sacrifice the king. That's how you lose the game. No, no. That's how I win, says God. That's how I win. And we are witnesses to that victory. That's what 11 and 12 is all about, okay? John put it this way when he wrote the Gospel of God. 
when he wrote the Gospel of John, when he wrote the Gospel of John, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Behold his glory in a new way today, church. Because that's what Revelate, that's that's what Jesus reveals to John in this passage. It's like you you saw me. You, you, you beheld my glory when, when water was changed to wine and when the blood and water flowed out of my side. You saw it in the feedings and in the, and, and, and in the, the signs and in the, 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 the words. And, and you, saw it at the, you saw it when I washed your feet. You saw it in so many ways, John. But you have not, you have not beheld my glory quite like this when I became flesh and dwelt among you. Chapter 12, there is this great and wondrous sign that appears in heaven. It is a woman. It is a woman. And, and oh, by the way, I just, need to, I just need to remind us. When we're reading Revelation, okay, we got to remember this is not a linear book, okay? It, we are not supposed to read it with primarily saying, okay, and then what happened next? And then what happened next? And then what happened next? Remember, it's, the question is, what did John see next, and what does it mean? Because you kind of need to buckle your seatbelts, because not only are we moving into the heart of the vision of, of, again, what the content of the scroll is, how God is going to finish all this and redeem it, but you also need to buckle your seatbelts because we're going to be moving forward and backward and all over the place in time. In fact, we're going to be going backward to go forward, actually, if you can believe that. Okay, that'll mess with you a little bit. We start out with the woman. She, who is she? Okay, first off, we have this description of her. She's clothed with the sun. She has the moon next to her, and she has the stars around her head. Who is she? Well, on the one hand, we can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 to say, who is the woman? She is Eve. She is the representative of, of the woman who, is, who has enmity with the serpent and his offspring, right? The woman and her offspring, the serpent and his offspring. The woman, the woman and her offspring represent everybody who will claim God, who will follow the lamb. This is all, I mean, this is the beginning of the narrative. Have we, I mean, like, I don't think we realize how far-reaching the narrative of the gospel is. It goes all the way back to the beginning, Right? Which also means that, that the serpent is the dragon as well, right? But she's not just Eve. She's also Israel. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 39 when Joseph has this really interesting dream and he's like, Hey, Mom, Dad, and all my brothers, I had this dream where the sun and the moon and the stars all bowed down to me. And the brothers are like, I'm going to kill that kid. <laughs> I, I am going to kill that kid. Okay. I mean, as arrogant of a dream as that was, even though it came true later, what was it? What, who are the sun and the moon and the stars? It's the family of Israel, the founding family of Israel, the founding family of God's promise, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all those who will follow. So the woman is Eve, the woman is Israel, is the woman Mary? Absolutely. She would be part of the faithful Israel. Is the woman us 
Is the woman the church? Absolutely. That's why she is a sign. She stands for something bigger than what she is. And there's another sign in heaven. There's a dragon. I won't get caught up in all of the, the details, but let's just say sevens and tens, those are, those are pretty significantly powerful numbers. So when we start talking about horns, those are symbols of power. This dude is powerful. When we talk about crowns, this dude is rich, okay? He has a lot of power on his side. But he's not a dude. He's a dragon. And, he's, and that means he's not a person. Just like the woman represents more than the woman, the dragon represents more than the dragon. And you, and you can go all over the Bible and, figure, and, and find out what it is. Okay? You can go all the way back to Genesis 1 and look at the, the, the depths, the chaos, right? That swirling, formless mass that God's spirit hovers over and pulls his order and his reality out of. That chaos... That's the dragon. The serpent in Genesis 3, that's the dragon. The one who accuses the brothers and sisters of Christ, that's the dragon. The accuser, Satan, that's his name. That's what he does. He accuses us. He slanders us. That's who it is. But really, the dragon is is all of the powers that have set themselves up against the lamb, and the woman is all of they who would follow the lamb and, and, and overcome by his Blood and the word of their testimony. I think it's really important to remember that because anytime we start assigning things like beasts and dragon and women and lambs to people, we are missing the point. Okay? Therefore, there will be no speculation about which political party member of the federal election the beast is, okay? <laughs> I will not do that to you, ever. Ain't right, okay? That's not the point. That's not what John is trying to lay out there. He is getting us to see things in a wider playing field. Things are not the way they seem. They are not just the way they seem. There's something bigger going on. So you have this this struggle. You have the woman who looks like she has no power, but is the emblem of those who who are followers of the Lamb. And you have the dragon that looks like he has all the power, And she is about ready to give birth to something, and the thing with all the power is getting ready to devour it, getting ready to steal it. And she gives birth to a child. Do you notice that the child is not a sign? The woman is a sign. The dragon is a sign. They are symbols of a greater reality. The child is not. Why? Because the child is the greater reality. He is reality. He is the one. And so even though he looks powerless, even though the baby in the manger looks like it has no chance against Herod, even though the man who stands stripped and naked and beaten with a crown of thorns on his head before Pilate, Looks like he has no power. He's able to say to Pilate, you would have no power unless it was given to you by my father and by me. And even the one who dies naked on the cross, 
and with his last gasps says, it is finished. Doesn't look very victorious. That is the point where the battle shifts. When the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. Keep reading in chapter 12. And there was a war in heaven. It's not a then, it's an and. Okay, again, it's not linear. It's not like the baby is born and then there's a war. This war has been going on. This conflict has been going on forever. Okay, between they that will allow God to have ultimate authority and those that will oppose him. But what's the tipping point? The baby in the manger is the tipping point. This is what I love about Revelation. It will not allow us to to couch the nativity story in like cozy sentimentality. You know, away in a manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. A battle was raging up in the sky. The dragon got thrown down and everybody said... I didn't. I can't rhyme that one. Okay, I, you get what I'm saying, right? It won't allow us to do that. This is cosmic, people. What happens here changes the course of the history of the universe. Don't forget that. We can't forget that. So many times we want to just skip over to the cross, but it's the fact that he became flesh and lived so that he could die so that he could be raised, so that he could ascend on high. I know it all gets condensed, but that whole thing, it looks like the dragon's going to win, and then he gets snatched up into heaven, and it changes everything. And the dragon gets hurled down to the ground. John seems to take a great amount of pleasure in saying that he gets thrown down, okay? Because he says it like seven times here, okay? Six or seven times, I forget. But he just keeps saying it over and over again. The dragon got thrown down. The dragon got thrown down. Hey, guess what? The dragon got thrown down. <laughs> Take that. There is a certain amount of joy that should come in the realization that this baby in the manger that looks so insignificant is the catalyst for everything that wants to destroy you and me being thrown down, being cast down being removed from power and replaced by the Lamb. And, of course, that's not the end of the story. Okay? But it puts it all in context. If you keep reading through chapter 12, he gets thrown down. And then I hear this voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Hang on to that. That's very important. We're going to talk about that in two seconds. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you, and he is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. And the whole rest of the chapter is about 
the dragon being filled with fury because he knows that his time is short and he can't touch the child and he can't touch the one who's on the throne. So what does he do? He goes after, well, eventually. We're going to get there, Nikolai, okay? But even, though he's, but even though he's over, we're still in the thrashing, right? He's still, he's still thrashing around and messing things up. But I'm glad you know the end of the story. We can't forget the end. But in the meantime, he's going after the ones that the son loves. And that explains a lot about our context. But it also explains a lot about what we're supposed to do. The dragon tries to spew this torrent of chaos out of his mouth. These lies about who we are, these lies about the truth, the lies about reality that want to just sweep us away in their torrent. But creation as God intended it moves in and swallows it up. Do you see those two realities working against each other? The chaos that wants to deny the reality of God, the creation that's actually his reality as it is versus reality as we're tempted to see it. They do battle over the heart of the church. God's reality wins. She is brought out to the wilderness in verse 6. It seems like a barren place. It seems like a difficult place. It is a difficult place. The wilderness is a place where you can't survive on your own. There are no provisions. You can't pretend that you're able to make it on your own out in the wilderness. It's kind of the point. That's why it's the desert. But we're calling on another theme throughout the entire narrative of the Bible because... The desert is the place where you cannot provide for yourself. But the desert is also the place where the people of God meet him. And they find their provision in him. We were talking about a lot of people, you know, and I I always go to like, you know, the the great ones. I go to like Elijah and I go to like Moses and then, yeah, and I go to Jesus, right? I I go to all those ones and then Marlene's like, Hagar. And I'm like, yes, yes. The forgotten one, the outcast, the powerless one, the refugee. She goes out there with nothing and says, I have nothing and, I have, and my child is going to die. And God meets her there. And he spreads his wings over her. And he gives her provision and he gives her life. Oh, I love this book, man. Okay? And the church will be brought out into the wilderness. And it will look like we are powerless, and it will look like we are exiles, and it will look like we are refugees, and it will look like we are the forgotten ones. If, we're at, if we are actually the followers of the Lamb, if we are actually living life in the shape of the lamb. It will look like that. And we will feel pushed beyond our own provisions, beyond our ability to take care of ourselves, because that is where we find the provision of the Lord. That is where we meet him, if we're willing. 
1260 days thing. Okay, here's our, la- here's our last move, okay? This is where I come back to testimony. This is where I come back to chapter 11, which you thought I completely forgot. Okay? She was taken out into the wilderness where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. What does that mean? I don't know. I don't know. I do not know why it is exactly 1260 days. I read a lot of different people that have a lot of different ideas, and most of them don't agree, and I went, okay, that's fine. We don't know. But this is interesting. You go back to chapter 11, and you go back to these two witnesses. The beginning of chapter 11. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go measure the temple of God and the altar. Count the worshipers who are there. Exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given over to the Gentiles. We are not talking about normal Jew-Gentile thing here. We are talking about, again, the separation between those who are followers of the Lamb and those who are followers of the dragon. Okay, They that, they that live for the Lamb and they that are the powers that are trying to oppose the kingdom of God that is coming. Okay? They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for, hi, 1260 days. What a coincidence, or not. Clothed in sackcloth, repentance, brokenness. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths and devours their enemies. And this is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have the power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. They have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Okay. Really quick. Who are they representing? Pop quiz. Shutting up the heavens. No water. Who is it? Thank you. Okay. Plagues and water turning to blood. Who is it? Is it actually Elijah and Moses? No. Thank you. All right. Okay, good. Good. Just making sure we're all tracking here, okay? But we're talking about the foundation of the prophets, the people who are the quintessential prophets. I know we don't think about Moses that much because we think about him as the law bringer. But frankly, the, the whole point of him bringing the law was him taking the word of God and delivering it to the people that they might live in it. Is that not what a prophet does? Just shake your head yes. Okay. Uh, so this is the, these are the prophet. This is, this is the idea of these are the quintessential prophets They stand for everybody who's ever been a prophet. Everybody who will ever be a prophet. And while while it looks like the temple of the Lord is being given over to be trampled, they are also testifying to the power of God. And it's interesting because those that come against them are taken down. But then also, if you keep reading, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss, you remember, it stood for both, in, in, the, in, the, in the judgment part, it stood for both the powers that be and also Apollyon, right? Rome. They come up, they attack them, overpower them and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which is figuratively Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. That's a very interesting jump to put Sodom 
and Egypt and Jerusalem in the same sentence. Any place can be the place where God reigns. Any place can be the place where God does not reign. We're talking about figurative things here. Uh, It's also very interesting that the place where the temple supposedly is, is Sodom and Egypt. What do we do with that? We need to realize that there's a move being made here. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them. They will celebrate by sending each other gifts. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies, refuse them burial. But after three and a half days, hmm, that's interesting, resurrection time. In the spirit of Jesus, the breath of life of God entered them. They stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come on up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies looked on. Okay, how does that connect to this? That's the big question that I want to finish with today, okay? And I think it's going to make a lot of sense, hopefully. But that's why we have email if it doesn't. Jesus is the tipping point for everything here. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. That is the point of everyone who's ever been a prophet. Was to testify that God is moving among us and we have beheld his glory. Now, without getting too much into it, all of this measuring and stuff like that of the temple, it happens in Ezekiel to prepare for the presence of God to enter the temple and fill it to its fullness. The temple isn't around anymore, so who are we talking about now? We're not talking about temples of wood and stone. We're talking about temples of flesh and bone. I measured you, and God said you're ready for this, for my presence, my Holy Spirit to enter into you. Even though on the outer courts, it looks like you're being trampled down. My power is in you. Prophets were testifying to the truth of God by the power of his spirit. You and I have the Holy Spirit. So guess what we are now? Prophets, you may not want that job description if you've seen how it goes. Because that's what this is. This is the story of every prophet that's ever been or ever will be. And there are times when the truth of Jesus is coming out of your life and the things that oppose it just get turned to ash and it's awesome. It's so cool. It just breaks through people's lives. It breaks through and, and creates new life and there's nothing that can stand. And then there's other times where by being faithful to the testimony of Jesus, you are ground down into the dirt and left for dead. That's the reality of anybody who's going to be a prophet. And yet, you are the church and you are being brought out into the wilderness, into that place of barrenness to meet him and his provision for you. Things are not as they seem. Because even though the dragon has all the power, and even though he's got all the wealth, and he seems to have all the resources, you and I overcome him. How do we overcome him? We live our lives, and we die our deaths every day 
by the power of the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony. This is who we are, church. This is what we're called to be. This is the Christmas story alive in you and me. The word became flesh and dwelt in us now. And we have beheld his glory day in and day out, even though we're being crushed. We are pressed down, but we are not crushed, right, says Paul. The philipsis, right, that we talked about, the affliction, the crushing pressure. It's there, but we have not been crushed by the crushing pressure. We have been persecuted, but we are not abandoned. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. We always carry around the death of Christ in us so that in us his life may be revealed. It's one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 4, I love it. And that's what's going on here. This is what we imagine. Was this Jesus' life? Absolutely. Did it change everything? Absolutely. Is this our lives now? Yes. This is our lives now. And what will change things absolutely for us and the world, what will do what judgment cannot do, what will do what witness alone cannot do, is that in all of life, through the judgment, through the highs and the lows and the tragedies and the sufferings and everything, when we are faithful witnesses, when we live our lives and die our deaths every day by the blood of the Lamb and the power of our testimony to that. That's your job description. That's your, that's your number one priority this week as we go into a Thanksgiving week. Now I'll go ahead and have worship team come up now. As we go into this Thanksgiving week, you are called to live lives of thanks and giving. Thanks be to God for the great love that he has given us in his son. You get to proclaim that in so many ways into the successes and the failures and the good and the bad and the joy and the pain of the world around you. But you also get to be a gift. You get to live your life and die your deaths every day by the power of the blood of the Lamb. He calls you out. He fills you with his spirit. He gives you the power. He lets you overcome. And even when it doesn't look like it, you are his prophet. You bear his testimony. And he will not forsake you. And the dragon will not have you. That is how we overcome. Amen, church? Amen. Merry Christmas.